0: You're listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership and peak performance through interviews with some of the greatest team captains and thought leaders in the sports world. Now, here is your host, performance coach, speaker, and author, Ben Smith. I love you. Welcome back, Captain's Coach listeners. I'm back today with another expert as we continue our journey into understanding the power that narrative has on our identity and performance. Today we have Kendall Haven on the podcast, the expert in the application of the science of story to the art of communication. He is a best selling author of Story Proof and Story Smart. He's well known for his writings on the Neural Story Net. The making sense mandate and the eight essential elements of story structure we jump right into all of these concepts along with stories impact on a person's identity and how to use it to improve your team so hold on to your seats and enjoy my conversation with dr. Kendall Haven Dr. Haven, welcome to the Captain's Coach Podcast. We're all really excited to have you on today and learn from you and your expertise in the science of storytelling. So if you wouldn't mind starting with um, just explaining to us what type of power story has in our lives.
1: As a, for now almost 40 years, I've been a touring working storyteller and Became a storyteller. Dropped out of the world of applied science. I was working at one of the national research labs. Dropped out because I was making up stories for a nephew. Literally on a regular basis in a park. He was a four, then five year old. Right in that that time frame, kid. And we'd go to the park and we'd play around, and then I would flop into the sandbox. I'd make up stories. And it's a this is back in the eighties, pre cell phone days. So the assumption was if you were talking. You, you were talking to the people who were physically around you as opposed to people scattered out around the globe. But it was amazing to watch how much of a magnet it was when I made up stories for this kid in the sandbox in a park in Alameda, California, how, how much, how well it drew other people in and how they locked on, even though they didn't, they came in late and didn't know what the story was about, and there was no guarantee the story was going anywhere because I was making it up, they would lock on, and I started to watch the adults who would drift in to listen to these stories and realize that they were listening to that story differently than we listened to other kinds of material. Now I can go into an EEG lab and I can show it to you. Uh, watch which parts of the brain light up literally physically you listen. Once you perceive that it's a story you're listening to, you listen differently than you do. There are other areas of the brain that light up as soon as you realize it's a story, you listen differently than you do to other kinds of material. So I dropped out of applied science and became a storyteller because I fell in awe of the power of story. And having now spent three plus decades, doing research on why it is that we listen to stories. Why do we pay attention to stories? Why do we remember stories? And all the research confirms that we do. We remember information in a story, if it's presented in story form much better than if it's presented to us in any other way. We recall it more readily and more accurately. The question is, why do we do that? What we find is that the human brain is physically hardwired to process incoming information initially according to very specific story terms and in very specific story mental modes and structures. We listen to incoming information in this in story terms and we form it into a story. It's not that story has power over us as much as it is that our brains are physically hardwired to interpret incoming information in story terms so and it happens before the information actually even gets to your conscious mind Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you think you're telling a story people will hear it in story terms so if you the speaker or the writer or the videographer plan and think in those story terms you have direct access into the conscious minds of your audience and story is the only structural narrative form that is consistent with and matches the neural wiring and the and the pre-programmed neural processing in the human brain yeah and that's where its power really comes from
0: and specifically what you're mentioning there i think is the neural story net is that correct yes it is component that kind of uh is is what helps the brain with the info and the information that's incoming and separating it and trying to get it and trying to organize it essentially correct
1: right information comes into you and word by word and sentence by sentence and I've done a lot of testing where I give test audiences or well you know it's usually done with one person at a time give a test reader one sentence of a story let them read it or listen to it and then I quiz them about what the story's about where's it going what do they think about the characters and track their reactions and their anticipations back to specific words in that story. Well, as soon as information is coming into you, the question you're asking at at an automatic, subconscious level is, how do I make sense out of this? And can I make sense out of it? So you're trying to sift, word by word, the incoming information into some mental structure that makes sense to you. We do that in story terms. Yeah. Once you make it make sense, then the next question is, Well, what does it mean to me, if anything? And and of course it's the meaning that we're always trying to communicate. But first we try to it has to make sense to a person and we do that in very specific story terms. Understand what those terms are and you understand how people are gonna try to make sense of your the information you're providing.
0: Yeah. And so I'd love to talk about that real quick too, is those those terms. And I think that you're referring to your eight essential um, elements of story yep. is correct? Um yep. I, I I'll probably do a rundown beforehand too, but any anything you have to say on that but uh, would be welcome, but in particular, my questions were in relation to the character piece i know that there yeah. are you you mentioned that there's a main character and then there you know there there are certain character types it's, just, it's
1: interesting the main there one. there are certain character positions that you we automatically try to fill in this little mental image of incoming information who's this about who's and we in story terms we call that the main character but even if you're trying if you see people walking down the hall you see a conversation going on you're you're in trying to make sense out of what you see what you experience same thing happens you're trying to say okay who's this about who's going on who's it about and not what are they doing, but what are they after? What are they trying to do? That is to say, a character and a goal, what a character is after, and a motive. Why are they doing it? And if we get those three bits of information, we start to think we understand what's going on. The problem is those are so essential that if we don't get the information, we'll always infer it. Watch yourself. Someone comes up to you and says, Oh, are you going to the meeting at two? And part of your mind flips to why'd they say that? Don't they know I'm going to the meeting at two? Are they trying to say I shouldn't go to the meeting at two? You're trying to inf- you're trying to review and infer motive behind what they've done. We're always looking for character, goal, and motive. Uh, yeah. yeah, how
0: and what were some of the other characters in particular? Okay.
1: Like, um, so then Once we get a character and a goal and a motive, the question is, well, why don't they, why haven't they already achieved that goal? Someone's trying to do something. Why haven't they already done it? And that brings up the concept of an antagonist. Again, that's the story, but in, in more general terms, an antagonist is anything that even momentarily blocks a character from achieving a goal. We designate the biggest of the obstacles that block a character from achieving a goal. We designate that as the the position of an antagonist. Normally speaking, in a story, kind of when we think of stories, that's a sentient, conscious being. But it doesn't have to be. You can have a storm being the antagonist mm-hmm. as long as it seems to be intent on trying to block some character from getting somewhere. You can have a mountain be the antagonist or, or you know, a, a river. And there are plenty of stories where characters struggle against those kinds of natural elements. As long And, and they work incredibly well as long as the audience can look at that mountain, stream, river, storm, has something that is intentionally trying to block the character. So the things that block character are the antagonist. Once you get those two character positions locked down, who's the story about, who's trying to stop, who or what is trying to block them, what are they after, goal, why do they want it, why is it important to them, motive, then what we want to see is a character struggle. It's amazing how in stories when we test it on audiences, if a character doesn't struggle enough, enough being defined here as what the audience thinks is appropriate given the goal and the obstacles and the stories, the, char- the audience will think that that person got off easy and they'll turn on the character. We want to see characters struggle. The more they struggle, the more we empathize with them. The more we start to identify with them. Um, but we want to see struggles. So we have then uh, in these elements: who's the main character, and what are the what are the core characteristics, traits of that character that will help us identify and lock onto and remember that character. So sort of characters, their traits, goal, motive the uh, obstacles, the chief of which is the antagonist,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the struggles, um, and what we're really, what makes excitement, what creates, what it really engages us isn't the, the, the conflicts and problems represented by the antagonist, it's the risk and danger that they create for the main character. Um, we are addicted to risk and danger, not for ourselves, but to watching other characters face risk and danger. Why do you think stunt people like Evil Knievel, Evil Knievel, by the way, on his last jump, uh, the last time he tried to jump across the Snake River, was guaranteed something like six million cash plus uh, I've forgotten what percentage of the royalties off of the video uh, when it was shown over and over again. Well, we get, he didn't get that kind of money just because he was you know, going to try to fly it because he was doing something that was, that we thought was incredibly risky. Risk is the likelihood something's going to go wrong. Danger is what happens to you if things go wrong. Well, okay. Increase risk, increase danger. And interestingly in stories, companies, government agencies, um, Often coaches, I suppose, will try to minimize risk and danger and say, oh, you know, we're we're, going to go out there. We're going to do a great job. And yet what we find, what motivates and what attracts audiences is not to minimize risk and danger, but to increase it for a character. If you want us to empathize with a character, if you want us to really identify with a character and adopt the viewpoints and attitudes of that character increase the risk and the danger that that character is going to have to face as they struggle to get past obstacles, the antagonist to get to a goal that's important to them. Right. And then add in the, the sensory details that make the receiver of the story able to visualize the elements, to visualize the scenes, see it in their mind. And you have those elements and rem- and and again just to emphasize this what we've, those are elements that we have been able to identify and isolate in the lab watching using e- mostly in the EEG labs watching people's brains as they receive story and information those are the elements that the brain is hardwired to use to make sense out of incoming information right so if you're the one providing the information if you can plan those elements and think about those elements to say, how is my art audience going to interpret those aspects of the information I want to give them? You can better control the way they make sense of, and then create meaning from your information. So those are the elements.
0: Uh, Could you give me some more distinguishing uh, factors, I guess, between a main character and an identity character?
1: Ah, now, when we get into looking at how do stories exert influence, what we find is um uh that there are a couple of other character positions that we really care about. Two others that I'll add in. And and those are the then the, the principal ones. We already have two, right. main character antagonist. and the antagonist. Um but a quick example. Uh, what's a good story? Oh, you, you know the story of Peter Pan. I
0: have Peter heard. Pan,
1: okay, he's a boy. He, he's a boy, and you know he flies. He, he he flies around. We meet him first as he's flying into London, and he goes into the, the Wendy's room, and he sees Wendy. and He says, "Hey, she's kind of cute," and he you know he, um, he he gets to meet her and talks her into coming back to his little island, uh, and so she brings her two her two brothers. She goes back. Peter wants, you know, Peter Pan, he's he's Peter Pan. He wants to play on the island and fight with Captain Hook. Captain Hook is his antagonist, right? That's the person who, that he's really struggling against. Um, His goal seems to be, although it's not real well stated in the original story, seems to be to play and have a real good time because uh, he's a boy. Uh, And at the end of the story, he defeats Hook. Hook is defeated and swims off, you know, and 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 runs off, chased by a crocodile. We'll get to the crocodile in a second. Uh, and he says to Wendy, "Go, on, you know, gee, thanks for coming. That was great. Why don't you go on home?" She goes back with her, with her brothers. And you're supposed to identify with Peter and look at the story through the eyes of Peter Pan. Look at it from his vantage point. Identify with that character as and and place yourself in the story in the position of that character. But what would happen if you were a Turn of the century, from the 1800s to the 1900s, English young 12, 13 year old girl, and you look at that story and you started to identify with Wendy. Yeah. And you say to yourself, so Wendy's sitting in bed, and here comes this boy flying in the in the window, and he's kind of cute. He wears weird clothes, uh, and and he makes up some silly story about a shadow, but that's probably because he's just nervous. And uh, and but you think. And he invites you to go to his island. And you think, okay, you know, there's some possibilities here. He's kind of cute and he can fly. Um, and that, you know, none of my girlfriends have a boyfriend who can fly. And there's clearly some family money because he owns his own island. I'll go. But being a good English girl, she takes her brothers with her. She gets to the island and she sublimates herself as good English girls were supposed to, cooks, cleans, nurtures. She's vacuuming, not vacuuming, but, but sweeping the floor of the where the lost boys live every day, which is a dirt floor. And in and, and the book, she sweeps it almost every day. Um, she is completely sublimating herself to take care of Peter and his needs and the lost boys' needs. Hmm. But who is she fighting with? Who is her enemy? In that story, it's Tinkerbell. Well, yeah. Tinkerbell, you know, a three-inch high, narcissistic, very crabby fairy uh, who is self-absorbed and is after Peter. So Tinkerbell is mad at Wendy because she thinks Wendy's after Peter because Wendy is after Peter. So it's a love triangle. Well, those two are fighting it out. But in the story, the climax of the story is that time that the main character confronts for the final time yeah his antagonist so this which is a physical part of the structure of the story it's when the last time when peter beats hook and after that peter says to wendy thanks for coming go home and you realize that in this battle for peter tinkerbell wins and wendy loses and has to go home and if you're a young English girl, what you've just been told is that the entire value system you've been brought up to believe in is a flop and a farce and a failure. Why? Because it didn't work. The, the, the narcissistic, self-absorbed, crabby, four-inch-high fairy won, and, you, and your, the character you identified with lost. Often in stories, an audience will start to identify with, relate to a character other than the character the person who is telling the story intends Mm. the audience to relate to. At that moment, if you're the one telling the story, you have lost control of your audience and the meaning they take from your material. So we find that it's worthwhile spending some time thinking about and analyzing who is it that your audience, your target audience, will identify with most in this story and manipulate the, the elements of the story to force the audience to identify with the character you want them to identify with so that they look at the story the way you want them to look at it.
0: In most of the cases would be the main character, right?
1: Generally speaking, oh, right. there is one other character position Now that we're in a character, we'll introduce one. And this is the last one we'll introduce because I I don't want to get this overly confusing. (laughs) But uh, it's the power position. The question is, who has the power to make the story come out the way they want it to? And where that position really is defined is at the climax of the story. Go back to Peter Pan. The climax of the story is the last time in that story that Peter and Captain Hook are fighting. And this is a, you know, there was not a lot of thought put into this story when it was first written. Um, The one who has the power to make it come out the way it does is this crocodile who comes out of nowhere, the one who swallowed a clock, who terrifies Captain Hook as soon as the, Peter can't drive Captain Hook off, but as soon as the crocodile arrives, he drives Captain Hook off, and then they take off and and Peter's left. Generally speaking in stories, when the question that you want to ask is, who do I want my target audience to think is the one that has the the real power to to make the story, to make things come out the way I want it to? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you want your audience to identify with that character, the climax, we call that the climax character. Right, right. You want them to think, yeah, I can do it. It's up to me. And sometimes, depending on the program, depending, on, you, you might want them to think, you know, I need, certainly commercial companies always want you to come to the conclusion that you need them. So they want to put themselves into the position of, of the climax character. So you'll need to wind up buying their product or their service uh, and so they'll, put, they'll want to put you in the, in, in the role of main character and let themselves be in the role of, this, of the climax character, the power position. Often, though, and I would think this is especially true for, for, for coaches, you're trying to manipulate the story so that the people under you look at themselves as being the ones that have the power to make it come out right. So as you're developing the story and making characters struggle, those characters in your story who struggle, you want to make the ones who have the power to eventually overcome the obstacles that stand between them and their goal. Right. So that we identify with the character, not who says yes, as soon as, well, uh, some, someone else comes in and, and take care of it. I'll, I'm fine. But, but says, yes, I can do it. another quick example, a wagon train going across the prairie, you know, 18, let's make it 1880s. There's five days. It's a John Wayne. We'll make it a John Wayne movie. John Wayne's leading the wagon train. He's, he's leading the wagon train cause he, he's in love with a school mom and once they get to Oregon wants to settle down with her. So he volunteered to guide the wagon train out three days, Five days out of St. Louis, they're attacked by Indians. They circle up the wagons. Flaming arrows are coming in. These are all farmers, you know. And they're, they're not, they're not fighters, and, and they don't have very many guns between them. And John Wayne is trying to hold off the Indians, but he's out of bullets, and he's down to throwing rocks at, at at the Indians. And you know, arrows are coming in. He's been hit three times, and and he and he's bleeding all over the place. And you're thinking, oh, woe is us. My my main character, the one I identify with, John Wayne, is gonna die and the poor school mom's gonna be gonna, gonna be violated and oh this is terrible. <laughs> and right at that last moment you he hear a little and you see the pennants come up over the hill and here comes the cavalry in to save the day. The cavalry is the power position. They're the climax character. They're not the main character, the one we identify with, but we realize that the main character can't get what he wants if the cavalry, the power-position people, the climax character, the cavalry don't come in and do their job. So that's an example of of having someone else, not the person we identify with, be the be yeah. the climax character.
2: Yeah, I was. Just- the thing
1: is, in every story, every listener, every reader is going to, at a subconscious level, automatically sift through the story material to try to fill these specific character positions. And if someone's providing the story ahead of time, the one who's providing the story, if they stop ahead of time and think about it and say, how do I want my audience to position themselves and identify themselves within this story? Mm -hmm. And then how do I structure the story to make them think that way? All of a sudden, the stories just have that magical power that we say, "Yeah, that's what stories are supposed to do." Right? It actually is not magic; it's it's it is it's engineering more than it is magic. It is, and, and it doesn't require you know a, a a specially skilled writer. It's I mean it's but if you get a good writer, they probably will get to that point faster. But every human being has it within their within their neural structure to find and use each one of those elements.
0: Right, and I think I, I really like kind of what you're uh, you're precluding here too, Ward's is like really understand who your target audience is always is, and then the story. You know, never start with the story. Understand your target audience, and then realize that the message is a part the story is a delivery mechanism for the message that you want to essentially implant.
1: <laughs> Very so well in, said. In the yep. conscious mind yep. of that TA, right? Every effective story is target audience specific, right? So specific, because you're, you're okay. trying to control how a specific group of people, a specific audience will internalize the story, make sense out of it and create meaning from it. So right. you have to know your audience. So speaking
0: of target audience, I'd love to kind of move into a little bit of, of narrative uh, engagement. I know you've worked with uh, Colonel Gregory Cease, who is oh, a yeah. mentor of mine, and I know that you've done a lot of work with him. Um, could you just kind of talk to us a little bit about what narrative is, you know, narrative warfare, narrative engagement, how you feel like story really fits perfectly, uh, you know, aligns well with that, um, that we can kind of. I got some questions for you in this realm, but would love to hear your yeah. initial thoughts there.
1: actually it narrative has always been uh, a very significant element in warfare it, always absolutely yeah uh, it It's gone under different names, you know um, propaganda and rumor, Uh, but it's always been there, and it's always been wielded as a very effective tool for changing attitudes, uh, both in a positive and or negative direction. Uh, What has changed in the last 15, 20 years, especially is the internet and the advent of social media mm-hmm. that have meant that that narrative portion of a campaign or a conflict are no longer controlled nearly as well or nearly as tightly by those individuals or organizations who are leading the conflict on either side so that you you don't have the control over the story. That, gosh, even going back to Vietnam, uh, that recently, it was pretty easy for Department of Defense and governments government agencies to control the story that was being told and the way that it would be perceived. Mm-hmm. Now, um, story is being played in a whole different level. And what it means is that we are in the midst and certainly not at a settled Understanding yet, but we are in the midst of a radical shift in the way that narrative has to be perceived and understood because its power has been, it's like put on steroids yeah, yeah. by the advent of social media and the internet, um, both in terms of the 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 reach of any actor and also the immediacy of the reach of any actor. Uh, And that means that narrative becomes a more time efficient tool almost than kinetic action that might be taken. Uh, And that narrative winds up being an element of conflict that can now be viewed as a leading element, both strategically and almost tactically.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So um, it's, and as I say, that certainly we are not at a place of, of being settled on how best to manage and control the information space. Uh, and And how to dominate it, although those concepts are beginning to at least be analyzed and studied. Um, but, my goodness, it is while the elements of story aren't changing, and the elements of story structure, the 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 influence elements of character and and the climax character. and um, controlling the resolution point of a story and how, it, how the story resolves itself and then, and then thereby controlling its, the influence it can exert. Those aren't changing, but how you control the distribution of and the structuring and modification of and restructuring of a story, those things are pretty much you know, out of control still at this point. Uh, and it makes for a, a really wild and woolly time,
0: right? Yes, this is absolutely incredibly powerful. When I was moving from active duty to the, I do this on the reserves now. Um, this, I, I knew that this was going to be the the future of the way that of the way that we conducted warfare, and I was really bought into that, and the way Colonel Cease talks about it as well. Um, so I'm very passionate about it, and I, I want to talk specifically about or at least just mention you know your work with him one of the things you did was you took your eight essential elements and you tried mm-hmm. to help us better reframe basically our seven step style process and it's at least it seemed like to me and so we yep. utilize or you all utilized the eight essential elements to help us create a more effective product and i really like that i think we'll definitely be able to use that but i wanted to ask you i think that and I haven't worked this all the way out yet, but I think yep. that it makes a lot of sense if we used your eight essential elements to portray what is the current situation is in regards to motive and different characters that are out, that are you know on the board, so to speak. And I don't know if, I'm sure Colonel Cease has talked to you about Black Knight methodology, which I won't talk too much about on here, but the concept of mm-hmm. Lewin's uh, equation where behavior is a function of a person in their environment. If we could use your right. eight, essential elements to better frame our sense of what we can do on the battlefield more immediately Mm -hmm. to have greater impact on the story. And if we can change the current story, utilizing your framework, that might, I just think that that would be an interesting framework to use. And I would like to know what
1: what you think there. Um, Uh, uh, Yes, I agree completely. Um, the eight elements. Um, let me look back up and say it this way: When you're looking at the the goal of of working on a story or working on reframing a story or shifting a story, the 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 idea is to exert influence. Right. And would you mind just... In, define- influence, let me define influence. Influence being changing added, uh, some target, someone's attitudes, beliefs, values, uh, and or behavior. So we're always, that's what we're trying to do. Ultimately, we we demonstrate that we have exerted influence by looking at shifts in behavior. But behind that shift in behavior, we're looking for a shift in attitudes, beliefs, values. And you can add in, some people add in knowledge as a, um, as another factor. So when we're looking at influence, then we're looking at that influence model, which is main character, goal, antagonist, and that climax character position, and then controlling resolution. Once we decide how do we want people to feel at the end of the story, what do we want them to walk away from this story feeling? How do we want to change their attitudes? Get the, those 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 takeaway goals, uh, and then say, all right. Once we've decided on that, then we can say, all right. What kind of a story will accomplish that mission? And literally, story delivery, storytelling is a mission and the mission is to affect influence, to deliver influence in a controlled way. Um, And so that always becomes then the metric against which you can measure the effectiveness of the story is did it did it have the effect I want did I, can, I see a, can I see a shift in attitude, belief, value, and or behavior in some target audience? Um, and often now, one of the most powerful uses of story in that way is for reframing a story that suddenly is out there. Reframing is about shifting something in the story. Right, not creating a brand new story, Um, and usually we do that by changing either rewording the goal of the main character in 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 subtle ways so that it it shifts the focus of the story, changing the main character. So we try to look at the story at that same events, the same time frame, the same um, part of the of the world. Through the eyes of a different character. And that changes then the way that the target audience will identify in themselves and empathize with characters in the story. Uh, and we try to, and then control m- motives. It's a, we found that if a target audience believes that the motives of the drivers, the, the, those forces that drive a character, and by, and by motive, I, I, I really mean um, the things that drive a character to want what they want. Okay? If we believe that the motives of a character match our own, we will always identify with that character in the story and even though we do it in subconsciously, we will always um, begin to uh, begin to identify with the character and begin to empathize with them to the point where we even without noticing it start to adopt some of their attitudes and viewpoints right, that makes sense uh, and that really is the definition of influence, yeah, so what w- often what w- the most effective use of story is not to say, here's the story I want to tell, but to start with what stories does my target audience already believe? Hmm. What stories do they already have? And how can I subtly reframe them to either take away their energy or to redirect the energy of those stories in the way that, so that I'm exerting influence in the direction, emotional direction that that I wanna take this audience.
0: Right, I think, um, I I'm, I've talked with Brian Steed recently, who I think you mm. know yep. well, and I really, from him, I really gleaned some insight in regards to uh, his model about how narrative is a terrain. And I yep. really like that model, and that's kind of, I see that connecting with what you're talking about, how there's already stories in place, and we need to understand. Yes. And where those stories are at, because every target audience has different stories already. Some are stronger than others. So I definitely Mm. see that connecting um, pretty well with what you're saying. And I do, I want to go back really quickly and ask you um, just one last question about narrative in relation to uh, the wars that we've had recently. And, uh, you know, especially with ISIS, we've really struggled Mm. with that narrative battle between the, and ISIS has done a very good job of you know, attracting uh, people to come fight for them over a hundred. Yes, they have. And so I want to read a quote that I heard on one of your podcasts that you did or a YouTube uh, video. And you said Mm -hmm. that stories are about struggles, about facing that risk and danger uh, are the greatest tool that you have to exert influence over an audience. And you say, so risk and danger are the consequences of failure. What would happen if something, you know, went wrong, the greater the risk, the greater the danger, the greater the excitement of the story. And I, I, I immediately kind of thought about America and, the, and I, I wanted to know why you thought we were losing this war and if it had anything to do with that quote uh, in relation to, I feel like, you know, there's much greater danger uh, with, you know, from the point of view of ISIS, who's trying to take over the empire that they see of, of, of what they see as America as being. Um, do you think that plays a role at all with our narrative and, uh, you know, I could be in left field there, but it was just something.
1: That- uh, well, yes, I do. Partly, um, there's, their stories, they made the stories very personal for their target audience and, and, and um. When you look at the risk and the look at it in terms of risk and danger, risk, the likelihood something's going to go wrong, the probability of failure, consequence, and danger is the consequences of failure. So it's literally what would happen if something goes wrong. Um, they were, they've always been able to hold up the US as this this great behemoth of. Uh, a villain in their, in their, so in their stories, we're the antagonist and we're this great and all powerful antagonist in a story. One of the, one of the uh, tenets of story writing is that your hero can only rise as high as their antagonist will let them. Hmm. You know, if if the Lone Ranger is in town and someone says, "Oh, old Snidely Whiplash is stealing the money from the bank," and the Lone Ranger runs over to the bank and there's his 90-year-old guy hobbling out on his crutches, and he's he's a half-blind and he's stolen a penny from the floor of the bank, and the you know Lone Ranger whips out whips out his ropes, ties the guy up, throws him on the ground, you know, and drags him off to jail we'll all turn on the Lone Ranger. If you want us to to identify with and become emotionally engaged by a main character, we need for that main character to struggle. The bigger the obstacles they struggle against, the greater the risk and the danger, the more we'll identify with them, the more we'll become emotionally invested with that character. ISIS had us the greatest power on this planet to use as the antagonist. Right. And all they had to do then is having established that then playing motive games and, and, and either state or imply motives for the U S which may not be true at all, but which would resonate with their target audience to make us not just Dangerous, but evil, and that creates a perfect story antagonist. Mm-hmm. In, in the uh, in, on the flip side, we didn't, we don't have that. I mean, there w- our motives are. Uh, I mean, truthfully, ISIS. Most people I think in this country probably believe that ISIS does not represent an immediate danger to them or their lives or to their country. Right. Which means that it becomes more of a question of the nobility of our goals but not the immediacy that you get from having personal risk and danger associated with going after those goals. Absolutely. So yeah, they had, they had some story tools available to them and also the freedom to play those tools with minimal regard for holding to, a, a, to recognize establishable facts and um, with a, a minimum amount of of fact-checking and truth-checking in their storytelling, they wanted to have the effect of the story, without necessarily having much of a um, of a rigor in their adherence to reality. So they got to spin whatever they wanted in their stories, much more so. That, and, and and that wasn't certainly true on the American side. I mean, as you know, there is a very rigorous careful process in deciding what inform what you can say and can't say to make sure that it really does hold to whatever scrutiny is given to it um and and that on the on the ISIS side they did they they didn't have that same kind of scrutiny
0: right that is very insightful. I, and I would definitely agree, tend to agree with you with my limited knowledge and experience in it. But I, I think that that's pretty fascinating. Um, I do, you were right about my ambitious schedule. There's a lot of questions that I had, that I had <laughs> on, the, on the radar here. So, and I do want to be protective of your time as well. I think we might have like maybe five or 10 minutes left if that's sure. her. Right. So if we could just kind of run, I have four bigger questions. I'll skip sure. the things. I had, please. please. Um, so initially one of the i've been reading through some of your work and one one question i had was you said that if the information or story doesn't make sense then our brain doesn't pay attention right but then but then it goes on to say that our brain will somehow try to make sense of that information by manipulating yes. or changing or morphing it so how does that work if, okay.
2: if it doesn't
1: make sense to us immediately it, this is one of the most i think one of the most important Aspects of the research that we've been doing. Oh, cool. um, your your brain you're, you're flooded with information all the time. Yeah. Not information, but let's say stimuli input. People are people are always every every advertiser every social media platform is will do anything to get your attention. That is the commodity that they all. Live off of is your attention. They need to engage you. So your your mind is always looking, both consciously and subconsciously, for ways to filter out the the noise, the garbage. Which means that if information is coming in and doesn't seem to be relevant to you, it doesn't seem to actually make sense at the moment. You're very willing to let it go. However, at the same time, as information is coming in. There is automatic circuitry that, that operates at a subconscious level as part of that, that initial processing of information. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of, in, of processing of information that comes into the mind that you're not consciously aware of. For example, if you read, what goes down the optic nerve isn't letters, isn't words. It's like a dot pattern you know the old uh, um, cathode ray gun would shoot a dot pattern at at the back side of a screen oh, that was nice. pixel by pixel uh either excite or or not excite the you know the 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 color and the the black and white uh elements within that pixel right that's really what goes down huh. the the optic nerve to get restructured by little subregions in, in in the lower back part of your brain, restructured into into the lines that get recognized by other parts of your brain as letters that get put together as groups of letters that that another part of your brain says, wait a minute, I recognize those. That's called a word. And and, and runs over to your to your internal dictionary and looks up what that word is. All that happens long before that information ever gets to your conscious mind. And we're not aware of it at all. But really, all what gets what initially gets your conscious mind is highly processed information, and part of that processing we're able to show is putting it into story form to make it make sense. So, here's to the extent that your brain can make it make sense if you can't make it make sense, you kind of let it go and say, Oh, that's stupid, it's gone. But to the extent you can, the brain, what we're founding is that neural story net has the ability to to be quite creative in the way it interprets incoming information to make it make sense. And that includes ignoring some of the information and using some, reinterpreting some of the information Mm -hmm. that'll make it make sense. It includes the ability to completely reverse factual statements that you could make if the person who's receiving it in completely reversing the factual statements you make, if that makes it make more sense to them. A uh, quick example, um, if, I, if you're standing in a corner of a room and you hear the following conversation. Person number one says, hi, John. Person number two says, shh, quiet. I'm not here. You never saw me. I'm not here. Person number one says, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Carol's gone home. Now, if you were standing in the corner of the room, you could make perfect sense out of that conversation. Mm-hmm. What you would assume is the person number two is John, right? And what John is really saying is, keep it quiet. There's certain people I don't want to run into today. I don't want them to know that I'm here. Person number one says, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. The person you're worried about, Carol's gone home, right? But That's not what It said, in order to make it make sense to you without ever thinking about the consequences of doing it, you completely reversed the factual, every factual statement that person number two gave you. Why? Because it didn't make sense otherwise. And you did it and you don't stop to think about the consequences of doing it. Well, that's a fun little silly example, but we do the exact same thing all the time. And I think most of the miscommunication that happens in this planet, between countries, between leaders, within a team, happen right there because someone says something and thinks I was perfectly clear. I said exactly what I wanted to say. And people listening to them or reading what they wrote walk away thinking they said something completely different. And it's all because of that neural story and its internal mandate to try to make it make sense, even if, the, if you have to change the information around in uh, an alarming degree to do that. Yeah. and, that, uh, and I hadn't So really, go ahead.
0: I hadn't really thought about this yet, but that seems to really make, uh, I guess, fit with uh, narrative fallacy where we try, mm, to yes. opinions, um, and we try to create a story based off of the limited information that we have and that once we come to a conclusion about that story that could potentially hurt us in our future decision making yep. uh, so that's really interesting and i think that that story really helps help to kind of bring it full circle there um,
1: did you want to have anything more to say on oh, that oh no uh, I, I mean partly we can go on for an hours on that but the, but that's that's the that's, the, that's <laughs> the, really such a that is that make sense mandate yeah the mandate to make sense out of it over trumps the mandate to accept the the statements that and, and the information that comes in as it is. We'd rather shift it around and change it and manipulate it and reinterpret it, um, alter it, massage it, ignore parts of it. You, we'd rather do that and we do it at a subconscious level. We'd rather, uh, the way our brains have have evolved we're programmed to do that as opposed to just say here here are the, the the observations i've made here's what i you know is coming through my senses and just accept it if it doesn't make sense to us yet yeah right uh, which means that if you're trying to do if you're the one who's trying to communicate that that the 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 make sense mandate in the in the neural story net part of the brains of your target audience is your greatest enemy and what you're always trying to do is figure it, that's part of thinking of everything from the viewpoint of your audience. How are they going to make sense out of this? What are they going to think? So that you can make sure they don't go off on some tangent that is totally different from what you, what you wanted them to focus on. Right. Wow. Um,
0: it, very interesting. So I, I would like to get to my other one, my other question here. Sure. So how much attention do you pay to Carl Jung and, and the hero's journey that he has essentially kind of put together back in the day? Um, and, did it, and did it play a role at all in your creation of the eight essential elements of story? Um,
1: not directly in the... let um, say it this way. The answer, the technical answer is no, not directly, but but there's a, let me explain real quickly. What I wanted to do with the... When we were in the process of saying, "How does the brain actually do it?" Um, there, there, there have been theories. Carl Jung, uh, you know, the, the the hero's journey. All the, the looking at um, those those kind of prototypical characters. That there there have been theories looking at what makes narrative work for thousands of years, and and they're not all that dissimilar. The question that I wanted to ask is, if we look now that we can, now that we have the ability to do that, if we look at the wire up audiences and look at their brain activity, can we see what, what is it that we really see happening in the brain? Is it the same thing that people have uh, have theorized, or is there some other mechanism that is really at an internal neural level driving this whole process? So the eight elements comes straight out of the lab work, right. straight out of EEG, fMRI labs. Once I identified and were able to isolate those, we can look at then say go back to to, um, ask some of these other any of those any of those great narrative theorists, yeah. and say yeah, well you know they they were sort of looking from the outside at story. Now we're looking from the inside. The advantage of looking from the inside is it it opened up um, far more detail on how to control the narrative. What is it that really defines, which elements really define and control how someone makes sense of or creates meaning from narrative, and which of the elements that are most amenable to your control if you want to adjust the way someone looks at the story well um, the easiest way and the best way to get at that is to be able to wire up an audience change uh, aspects of a narrative and then and then measure literally measure the difference in the way they their their brains respond so it's not that those I'm not trying to do something different from, from those people. It's this, that I'm starting from a very different perspective point. I want to go inside the brain of the receiver and say, okay, how does their brain work and respond and then take that information out rather than start from the outside and look as, as theorists always have and said, okay, here are the stories that really seem to resonate with people. Let's look at the characteristics of those stories and say, those must be what really drive the drive the brain. Um, so it's starting at a different it's really starting at a different spot for doing the research rather than than um, trying to play off of the theory and the, and, and the, the very excellent work that's been done or by uh, oh, a couple of dozen great theorists over the last thousand years.
0: Yeah, well, that, that makes total sense. I, I certainly can appreciate that approach. Um, I do just one final question for you, um, Kendall, if you wouldn't mind maybe just commenting. This is going to be useful for me, I think, because I'm, I'm trying to put these mental models together about how this all fits, you know, in relationship to just life in general, I guess. So um, the model I've kind of come up with, I, I, I've called like the zone of uh, transformation, it's essentially we we go through experiences and we have a perception on that experience. Uh-huh. And then from that perception, we create a story which drives a narrative, which ends up enforcing a concrete belief. And so those five things um, I, I just would like to know what your thoughts are. And if, you know, it's much more complicated than that, but would, what would you say should change within that model that I've kind of created so far for myself to to better understand things? And then, second to that question would be more of a comment from me is which is wh- why stories are so powerful in transforming us because they are um essentially an experience that's just a vicarious experience that we're um going through in a sense and so it's very like very very unco- it's an unconscious subconscious piece of the pie that if we and that you know fits really well with the narrative theory of identity which we didn't get a chance to talk into mm. today which I'm very um, interested in learning more about yeah. as well um but you know I, so any thoughts on on those uh, those things that I've mentioned
1: okay uh do the five elements yeah here,
0: so we, we do one more time we go through an experience yep and then from that experience there's some sort of a perception that we have on that experience so if you okay. know okay um, and then from there, we create a story which drives a narrative, which drives a belief. And maybe to give you a quick example, let's say I grew up with uh, with a father that was never around, right? That's an experience. And the way I perceive it as a young child is my dad doesn't love me. So yep. there's a story that I've kind of started to create, which is turning into a narrative um, about, you know, maybe I come up with a story like, well, maybe my dad doesn't love me because I'm not um, good enough, Right. And so that's a story that we create, and then that story ends up changing our our character and personality and belief, yep. and it just kind of streamlines from there um so yeah, any I don't know if that helps at all, but
1: yeah uh and yes,
0: I
2: like
1: those elements um, rather than make it linear though, yeah, I would look at it um there There's a circular feedback element Great. here I agree, because before you had the experience, you already had stories um, and those, even if they were just vague um, self created stories, they were there and and and, and at some level created. A belief system. So now we have an experience, and part of making sense out of and creating meaning from the experience is to say, how does this relate to the belief systems I already have?
0: Yeah. Yeah, like I, I definitely agree with the, the more circular in nature, especially when we talk about perception and the role that our previous beliefs like confirmation bias have on the way yeah.
1: we perceive that experience, so, right? So, so as as the role of story then, or giving someone a new experience, be it a narrative experience, yeah, um, is to say, not to say, I'm going to create a new belief system but I'm gonna modify their, their existing belief system with this new story. Now, so if, for example, take your boy who grows up without a father. Some kids w- are, are gonna wind up with the sort of going in the direction that you, you mentioned, and some would go in a direction that says, I'm so great, I don't need a dad, Mm -hmm. My dad probably knew that, knew I'd take care of myself just fine and spin out a totally different story. Well, the question is then, where do those two different story approaches come from? And the answer is from the stories that existed before that experience took place. Right, Um, Right. And so always when you're looking at saying, how does a story going to exert influence have, have, have impact what you're looking at. And we're right back to looking at your target audience and saying, no, oh, what are the stories they already have? How is this going to play How, with those stories? Are they, um, so it's, it's this constant feedback loop system. Yeah, which is in 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 a lot of ways that's that's good. Um, it means that it's that people don't do these radical instant swings from one extreme to another mm-hmm. because they have whatever experiences, past experiences, and beliefs, attitudes, values, whatever that core stock of. Um, sense that they have that's there so that a new experience has it has to mesh with and somehow modify but not completely replace the existing system right so um but what that the, those kind of that kind of a, of a of a model that you're building what it gives you are specific points to address or to attack if you want to alter some other point in that system and that makes it I think that, that can make it really very useful a conceptual approach
0: yeah, and that's kind of where I, yeah, as I try to wrap my head around this. That's just the first place I want to start is like what is my model for this and let me not be concrete on it, but let me I got to have a starting point. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I really liked your the and I agree with you completely. It's much it's not linear, right? It's much more of a system-based approach. There's feedback loops and all sorts of things.
1: So But you can look at you can incorporate those out making it a, a very monstrously complex model yeah, right. because right, right. Conceptually, what you're doing is, uh, yeah, you're you what you're doing is identifying those spots in where you can um, exert some alteration to the system, mm-hmm. and then use the other elements in that system to get a, a good sense of what the alteration will do. That you what what, it, what the action you want to take will will do what effect it will have, and uh, how to control that effect. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Kendall, I appreciate your time. We were I definitely ran over what you had originally allotted me, so I appreciate it. That's No time. problem.
1: Very good. Well, it was fun.
0: Yeah, well, it's fun. It's I, fun. I, I it. it was fun. I appreciate it. I got a lot of answers uh, from you. I still have a lot of questions, uh, but I'll, <laughs> I'll do it. So maybe in another six months, I can reach back out if you would be willing to maybe. Uh,
1: Absolutely. Certainly.
0: Me. So, again, yeah, we
1: can uh, we, we can talk about some of the, the, the new that, you know, the yes. new research that you certainly haven't read about because I haven't written it up yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, excited. Uh, I, I
0: talked with, uh, when I talked with Colonel Cease, he said he was trying to get you to do some more work with him. So I'm I sure. know
1: we're trying to, yeah. yeah. I, take the new work that I've been doing and saying, okay, I'm now excited. we got to apply it and, right. and mold it and blend it into the, the whole system. Certainly. So well, I'm excited
0: to hear, hear about how that, that turns out. So yeah, I'd love to maybe reach back out soon, but again, I appreciate your time. Um, and, uh,
1: best of luck to, to everything you got going on. And also to you. It was was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Kendall. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the captain's coach podcast with Ben Smith. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the captain's coach podcast. As a bonus for you all still listening, uh, I ended up being able to record a couple more things before we really did a formal introduction that Kendall spoke about on story. So uh, for those, again, still listening, here's your bonus. Uh, another extra couple of minutes on Kendall talking about
1: uh, the power of story. Enjoy. Well, you know, the the way I look at it is this. If you're a human being, you tell stories. Yeah you do it because starting at about the time you were i don't know year and a half two years old you started to figure out that putting information together that way worked it got you what you wanted and so we all tell stories all the time that's the good news that's also the bad news it's the bad news because like so many other things that you do repeatedly regularly you don't store directions for that information in a in the conscious part of your mind, your conscious processor, because it's the slowest, most inefficient processor you've got. Things that you do all the time, like buttoning buttons or tying shoes, uh, or you know, maintaining body temperature, or you know, all those things that you do all the time, you keep you store in subconscious processors that are literally a hundred thousand times faster and more efficient than your conscious mind so that consciously you no longer have access to them. You don't really know how you tie shoelaces, you just do it, right? You don't really know how you button a button, you just do it. You tell your stories the same way until you stop getting the information for the stories from the sources that you grew up using. Huh? And as soon as you change sources from personal experience to some other source, something you create, something you develop, uh, some program that you want to present, you wind up not having access to the delivery system that you spent a lifetime developing. Okay. And so what happens is that you put in some, you automat your body automatically puts in some surrogate substitute systems that are monumentally ineffective. Uh, for example, uh, if I was doing a workshop, we wouldn't, I wouldn't jump here. We we'd, we'd demo it three or four times first, but when, think back on something that happened to you when you were a kid, you know, some little event, first thing that pops into your mind, and there are two kinds of information that you typically pop up into your head. One is what you call the event. It's like that what it looked like sounded like it's sensory images right what you recorded from your senses at the time your mind's real good at recording those the other one is how you felt at that moment and that emotional memory is literally what drives and directs the way you tell the story when you go to tell it Hmm. when you get a story from some other source you don't have that emotional memory to use as a guide for what to do with your face, your hands, your mouth, your your voice, your body, uh, because that's that emotional memory that drives all those things. And so, what happens is that your body desperately is looking around for a for substitute director, and settles on the way you feel at the moment of delivery, and rarely does that match the way that the character in the story feels? So that the way you're telling it, does it match what's going on in the story? A good definition for effective storytelling is, from the teller's point of view, and we're jumping way ahead here, um, (laughs) yeah, sort of going off on a tangent, but a, a good definition for storytelling from the teller's point of view is, to deliver the story so that what you say and the way you say it match and sound real, natural and compelling. And audiences are phenomenally good at a subconscious level of picking up on those elements to decide if they think you are really committed to and believe in what you say. And so often people get in trouble because, not because they don't believe in what they say, but because having not spent any time thinking about how they're gonna say it when they get up to the talking, the way they're saying it, that is to say the emotional drivers that control what you do with your hands, face, voice, don't match what's going on emotionally with the characters in the story and it sounds contrived and phony. Wow, And and yet it's incredibly easy to fix as soon as you're aware of what is what's going on inside the subconscious processors and the the way that we do the way that we actually go about delivering story. Right. Anyway, that that actually wasn't something that I was planning (laughs) to dive into.